Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. So, um, the, the fancy word to talk about how it is that we, like, so you, you've got a, a historical or a physical character event that takes place and then how it's interpreted um, and how we used to kind of in- interpret primarily through a, a singular or maybe a dual lens is called uh, hermeneutics. So the, the hermeneutic is comes from the, the Greek god Hermes that, that brought the message, that translates the message. So the message here gets brought here. So tr- the translation or the interpretation is called hermeneutics. And so I was going to share with you something that, that what's been... A, and it's going to be up here. Sorry, I think I have to shift a little bit. Um, what's been a little bit both liberating and devastating about what we would call a modern uh, hermeneutic is that these things have taken, we've kind of realized this, right? Not all voices in history are presented equally, right? So even the presentation of what history was, a bias exists in the historical texts themselves, even the Bible. Right? So no text is, is, is in and of itself value-free or neutral or objective. Any of you who have studied, um, and, and uh, especially in, in the Western world, if you get to graduate-level studies, typically you are going back to, if you're in the legal field, you go back to the common law in Great Britain and London. If you are studying theology, you've got to go learn German because that's where the great theologians, they spoke German and they wrote in German. And this is understanding that if you can get back to that language, then you can get an objective understanding. This is what the truth was. And then you can go from there. Well, what the modern hermeneutics says is that No, inherently, whoever chose to put the thing in writing and how they put it in writing, there is an inherent bias there. So that kind of sucks because there's like no place you can go back to and get the the thing. Number two, not all readers originate from the same social location. So therefore, bias exists in the process of reading and interpreting historical, biblical texts, whatever. So not only is the text that we're reading in and of itself inherently biased, the way I come to it, I have certain views, ideas, understandings that I might think I'm totally normal or everyone's kind of like me, um, but we're not. And so a modern critical hermeneutic recognizes that the, that the person who comes to the text or the incident also has a background. So that therefore, I don't know, did any of you have like um, in, in school, did you ever have a, a teacher come in who was either of a different background, different gender, different skin color, and they taught the subject, and you were like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, did that ever happen to anybody here? I saw you nod your head. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mr. Mansoor, who's a Lebanese uh, teacher I had in high school. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have that, that happen? Yeah. yeah I, had, um, I went to high school in Hawaii when my dad was stationed there, and um, Mrs. Hirayama, who was my history teacher, um, taught a very different, taught history, um, through uh, the evolution of religions. Mm-hmm. And so we got to see for the first time how how they're all connected. Mm-hmm. And so that shaped a lot. And then in college, I had a professor who taught history from the bottom up. And it was about, he was, had the Civil War period. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was through the eyes of um, people who were enslaved. Mm-hmm. So it was just a real difference. Yeah. Kind of changes things. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I think Nick, you're going to say something. Yeah, I think it was, it 
nothing to do with the, the topics of the course, but he would share a little bit about his personal experience and say, well, you know, how did you come to the NCUS? What, what are your feelings and pros and cons? What are you, you know, talking about? I was trying to pull out a little bit of his experience in it. And it was interesting to hear. He, he just said, I don't really care if there's a tyrant in power. It doesn't bother me mm. if I don't have to, you know, one of the, oh, I can't say anything bad about the president. I don't care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. Like yeah. his, Freedom his of speech whole, wasn't the top. No, yeah, his uh, whole uh, attitude was just so different from, yeah. from everyone else in the course. Right. Basically, we all kind of sat back. Oh, that's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? Because we can tend to think, unchallenged, that those ideals, freedom of speech or whatever, that, of course, that's the top of whatever. And, and, and until you have someone else who says, actually, no, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. This is what means a lot to me. Um, that, can, that can rock your world a little bit. So um, not all voices are presented equally. Not all readers originate from the same place. And so therefore, <clears throat> this double bias has historically favored who do you think? Those with power, right? Why? Yes, they've got the resources. Yeah. They're the ones who are literate. They're the ones who own the printing presses. They're the ones who whatever. So whoever has got power and influence, and what gender do those people tend to be? White men. Almost ex exclusively male, and, and for, the, for much of the you know, last couple thousand years, it's been white, white men, at least in, in the vast chunks of, of our world. Um, and so the, the ideas or the perspective of those who are religiously, socially, politically, economically have got power um, get that in both the text, in the writing of the text, but then also in the reading and the interpreting of the text. So not only do they play the role in what gets written, but also how that is interpreted, which is, which is interesting. And again, a little bit shattering, because you like to think that you can just get back to something that is the truth. Um, what I want us to apply this to is uh, the Bible today. So, First Kings is the book that we're going to look at. First Kings, uh, you know, uh, written 800, 900,000 years ago, something like that. And if you uh, if you start flipping around in the, like the middle of the Old Testament, you'll run into First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Kings is before that, and <clears throat> we are um, going to be looking at ch uh, chapter six which is found on page 446447. So the, the character that we're going to read about this morning uh, is uh, her name, and she's found in the Bible and for a, a few places, and, and one of the female names in the Bible that, is, that is, comes up a, a handful of times, a chunk of the of first Kings and second Kings, is a, a person named Jezebel. Now, how many of you have read Jezebel in the Bible? How many of you have heard the name Jezebel? How many of you know that as a descriptor? That person is a Jezebel. Okay, some of us have. So, when you say that about somebody, when you say that person is a Jezebel, what does that mean? What goes along with that? Promiscuous. Sexual, okay, sexual deviant, right? Promiscuous. Promiscuous, promiscuous. Uh, Yeah, so women of darker skin, Jezebel, and there's something... Opinionated, educated. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I would say like a manipulator, right? So some, to be a manipulator, you've got to be somewhat, you know, savvy, uh, but manipulates primarily through sex, sexuality, um, sexual innuendo. Uh, someone in the first service said, I just think a slut. I mean, a Jezebel was a slut. That was, I was like, wow, bravo. 
Um, but that's, that's the understanding of, of Jezebel. So that is the interpretation, the hermeneutic that has come down over the age. That's who Jezebel is. Interesting thing to do then is then to look at the, actually read the text. Uh, the text which was written by men, uh, you know, maybe 2,000 years ago, and see what it says. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to introduce to you this person, Jezebel. This is the first time she shows up, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. Now, they're listing through in the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they're listing through all the kings of Israel. Uh, so in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa, so there's a king of Judah, his name is Asa, Ahab, whose Omri's son, became king of Israel. So you got Judah, you got Israel. Ahab, Omri's son, becomes king of Israel. He ruled over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And he did evil in the Lord's eyes more than anyone who preceded him. Ahab found it easy to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, Naboth's son. Jeroboam would have been like Ahab's great-great-grandfather. He was a king and he was awful. He married, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, who was the king of the Sidonians. (coughs) Ahab served and worshipped Baal, or actually, I don't know if it's the he is referring to Ethbal or Ahab, but either way, he served and worshipped Baal. Ahab made an altar for Baal in the Baal temple, or it's, after, it's pronounced Baal, um, that he constructed in Samaria. Ahab also made a sacred pole, or an Asherah pole, and did more anger to the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of Israel's kings who preceded him. So, we are introduced here to Ahab, king of Israel. Real, real quick history geography lesson. Well, there's Jezebel, by the way. When you do a Google search for Jezebel, these are the, these are the first things that show up. Uh, for some reason, red. Red is, yeah, sexy. Uh, the woman in the middle, that Jezebel in the middle, I would recommend that book to you. Her name is Leslie Hazelton. She wrote a historical novel on Jezebel, but takes a different perspective and I think is, is, is very helpful. When we talk about Israel, just to remember, to put this on a world map, Israel is on the eastern, southeastern shore of the Mediterranean, that little sliver of land right there that, you know, wars have been fought for the last how many thousands of years. And when you talk about Israel in the time of the kings, that little chunk right there was actually broken. After King David and Solomon, who had united Israel and the tribes of Israel, when you think of this time, it's a bunch of tribes and city-states. It's not nation-states like we have today. And so these different tribes would gather together, then they'd part. And so under Solomon and David, all the tribes of Israel and some others were gathered together and became the kingdom of Israel. But after those guys left, their sons and followers and such were not as good of leaders and were corrupt. Well, not that Nathan, I mean, that, that, that David and, and, uh, Sam and Solomon were the best either. But one of the things that happened was that the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the thing that's confusing is the southern kingdom was always called Judah and the northern kingdom was called Israel. And so when they say the king of Israel, you think, oh, well, no, it's actually the king of the northern kingdoms. So Ahab was one of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdoms. And that's why at the beginning of this text, it, it lists Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the same time. So you have these parallel kingdoms happening within Israel. The, the kind of the seat of power in Israel, the northern kingdom, was Samaria. And here I got a little bit more of a close-up here. Uh, and, and if you look up to the left, the northwest of Israel would have been Phoenicia. And if you look um, also down here, you have Philista. Do you, do you guys remember who the main enemies of the... Israelites were in the Old Testament, these names, remember? The, the Philistines, remember the Philistines? And the Phoenicians, because they were the people of the sea. 
They were the people who had the boats. They knew sea craft, all this kind of stuff. And so if the Israelites or the people of Judah wanted to get any trading done, they had to work with the Philistines and the Phoenicians. And oftentimes they ended up fighting with them. So the big guy whose head David chopped off was a Philistine. Right? So there's always these wars between the Israelites and the, and the people of Judah and the people of the sea. So Phoenicia here was actually not called Phoenicia initially. Do you see the city up here? This is the city of Tyre. And a little bit further up was another major port city called Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Have you heard those names? So Tyre and Sidon were the two of the, those were in Jesus' day too. They're still there today. But they were the biggest city-states in that area. And um, as we read here about Jezebel, did you hear her, who her father is? So Ahab married her, and she was the daughter of Ethbal, who was what? The king of the Sidonians. So this this, the city of Sidon is north of here. There was a city of Sidon. There's a city of Tyre in this whole area. And Ethbal was, as we learned from, just trust me on this, some research from, from a, a historian of the, of the time. His name was Josephus. Ethbal was a high priest. And he united Tyre and Sidon and became then, after he kind of graduated from being the high priest, of Baal, Baal the, the, god of the, uh, the god of fertility, the god of... Uh, of um, weather, lightning, storms and stuff. That was, and you can see why the Phoenicians would have a god that dealt with storms and lightning and that kind of stuff. Uh, that that um, after he had united Tyre and Sidon, he then became king of the Phoenicians or of the Sidonians. And so this is a pretty influential guy. Spiritually, um, obviously, you know, a, a leader as a high priest, but then also um, in terms of a, a political leader became the king. So the marriage between the Ethbal's daughter and the king of Israel is what? Do you know what you call that? Arranged marriage. Yeah, it's an arranged marriage, right? For why? Why do you do that? It's political powers. It's political powers, yeah. That, we don't kill each other if, if we're family, right? So you, you wed, you unite the kingdoms, and so it's an arranged marriage, and you've got Ahab marrying Jezebel, who is the daughter of a king, and so that makes her what? A princess. She's a princess, right? And she is she marries a king, and so she's also a queen, right? She's also the daughter of a high priest, and so she's kind of got the religious stuff in her blood as well. So she's a well-bred, well-educated, we'll learn out, we'll learn later, woman who marries into this, and, and she, uh, because of her dad and, and her family, she worshiped Baal as well. Baal was her god, and the word Baal literally just means lord or master. And so some people said even the, even the, um, the, the Hebrews god, sometimes the same suffix is used. And so, you know, was, was it that horrible, this religion they practiced? Probably not. It was another kind of a, a god that, that they prayed to for um, safe travel and for the crops to come in and for all that kind of stuff. And so the two of them get together, and what happens is you learn, um, as you start to read on from here, is that Ahab starts to worship Baal instead of Yahweh. So Ahab, who's like the worst ever, right? His, his dad, Omri, was the worst, but then he's even worse than his dad. He starts worshiping um, Baal. And because of that, and he sets up an Asherah pole, which is a pole that you kind of danced around like a maypole, part of these religious ceremonies. Because of that, this, um, this new prophet emerges in Israel who stands up and says, this is wrong. You can't do this. And that prophet's name is Elijah. So Elijah comes to, and, we, and one, of the, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible is chapter 18 of 1 King. And it is the, the story of Elijah, after um, he learns that Ahab has set up an Asherah pole and is worshiping Baal, <clears throat> he says, because of that wickedness, um, rain will no longer fall on all of Israel. And so there's going to be a drought 
and, and until you repent, until you turn away, until you, you know, kind of kick ball out, um, this is what's going to happen. So the, the drought goes on, they say, for like three years. And finally, at the end of this drought, as Israel is being just suffocated, there is this confrontation between Ahab, who's still worshiping Baal, and Elijah. And this is fan- and we're going to read this next, next week, so you can read it ahead if you want to. But this wonderful kind of um, conflict between Elijah, who stands for um, Yahweh, and the, and the priests of Baal, who are praying for uh, the same thing to happen, that, that the fire would come down from heaven and consume their offering. So that takes place in, in, in 18. There's this conflict. Jezebel isn't there. She's made reference to, but she's not there. And then the last thing I'm going to have us take a look at is in chapter 21. And in chapter 21 is the next time that Jezebel is brought up. She is still the queen. She is Ahab's wife. And I'm just going to read this through to you, and then we're going to talk, and, and we'll be done with, with this uh, reading of the Bible. So it's about Naboth's vineyard. Um, Ahab is the king. Uh, he has all the rights that that infers upon him. Uh, he sees this vineyard that's near his castle that he wants as his own, and he wants to get it. And so that's what he does. Now, it happened sometime later that Naboth from Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel that was next to the palace of King Ahab of the Samaria. Ahab ordered Naboth, Give me your vineyard so it can become my vegetable garden because it is right next to my palace. In exchange for it, I will give you an even better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you price in silver. Now Naboth responded to Ahab, Lord forbid, Yahweh forbid, whenever you see the all caps, that means Yahweh, forbid that I give you my family inheritance. So basically Naboth is like, listen man, this was inherited, this is my inheritance, and, and land means a lot to us Hebrews because God promised it to us. And so for me to give you my land would be to kind of give up both my inheritance but also my faith. So sorry, I can't do it. Ahab, who's also a Hebrew, says, you know, he kind of sulks and he goes back to his palace. He's irritated. He's upset that Naboth had said to him because Naboth had said, I won't give you my family inheritance. Ahab then lay down on his bed and turned his face away and he wouldn't eat anything. <laughs> is that... Bring to mind any, any you ever see somebody do this? What else? What do we call this? Pouting. Pouting? Yes. Uh-huh. His wife, Jezebel, came to him. Why are you upset and not eating any food, she asked. And he answered her. I was talking to Naboth. I mean, you can just see this. <laughs> and I said, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard for it. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife, Jezebel, said to him, um, aren't you the one who rules Israel? Get up. Eat some food and cheer up. I'll get Naboth's vineyard for you myself. And she does. One of the things she does is she takes a pen and she writes letters to all of the elders in the area. So we know that she is, right, she's educated, she's literate. And and she kind of puts together this scheme and she ends up having Naboth killed. And as soon as he's killed, she goes to her husband and says, hey, hey, Naboth's out of the way. Uh, The land is yours. And he's like, yeah, all right, I got my land. And he goes and he gets his land. He's excited to have the vineyard. And as soon as that happens... Elijah, the prophet of God, shows up at his doorstep again. And so I want to, this is the last part we're going to read here. Um, Elijah shows up, starting at verse 20. Ahab says to Elijah, you found me, my old enemy. I found you, Elijah said, because you've enslaved yourself by doing evil in the Lord's eyes. So now I am bringing evil on you. I will burn until you are consumed. I will eliminate everyone who urinates on a wall that belongs to Ahab, whether slave or free. What do you think of that? <laughs> I have no idea really what that means, but it's not good. I will make your household like that of Jeroboam, Nabat's son, and like the house of Basha, Ahijah's son. 
because of the way that you've angered me and because you've made Israel sin. As for Jezebel, the Lord says this, dogs will devour Jezebel in the area of Jezreel. Dogs will eat anyone of Ahab's family who dies in town. The birds will eat anyone who dies in the country. Okay? Verse 25, truly there has never been anyone like Ahab who sold out by doing evil in the Lord's eyes, evil that his wife Jezebel led him to do. Ahab's actions were deplorable. He followed after the worthless idols exactly like the Amorites had done, the very ones the Lord had removed from before the Israelites. So that's about it. That's what we get from Jezebel. A little bit. So the question is, why, when we think of Jezebel, do we think of sexually promiscuous, slut, deceptive? Why? What, what, what did you see, what you, just reading the text, and again, this text was written by a man. As you read that, as we read that, what, what, what words would you use to describe Jezebel? Educated. Yeah. Resourceful. Resourceful. <laughs> Enculturated. Yeah, yeah. Was she, uh, was she faithful? I, I mean, I think one of her faults could be she was too faithful to Ahab. She like started doing Ahab's job for him. She was an, maybe an enabler. Yeah. She had kind of the guts and the gumption that her husband didn't, and so she did stuff. Got, she sealed the deal. I mean, I don't, it sounds like, it's like, hey, man, art of the deal. This is how it gets done. Sorry, people get hurt. This is, this is, how, you, this is how you get land if you want land. I know how to do it, and I'll take care of it. And she does. Um, she's, um, she's serious, and, and she's, she's no one to kind of mess with. She um, says, ask women first. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> We should always ask women first when somebody yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very practical. Kind of yeah. 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 Like, yeah. 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 It's just so interesting that, that this trope could emerge from the... Te- like, why does that happen? Claire. It comes... Well, I've kind of read a little bit about the Madonna-Four dichotomy, where um, women in power, people kind of perceive them as um, just wrongdoers because they can't... Sorry, my face is still off. But they can't perceive women as powerful or doing good things, and so they kind of minimize them down to something that they can't understand, which is whores and just... Madonna's. Yeah, Madonna's mm-hmm. things that they can kind of just belittle women to for them to understand yeah. because they can't imagine a woman being powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how um, the title of my sermon this morning was the um, when the when your character becomes a caricature and how. Um, Jezebel is an extreme example of somebody who was faithful to her God, um, faithful to her husband, shrewd, um, and, and yet because of who she was, both the biblical writers, in, in the words in the mouth of Elijah, but then also the interpretations, and then Hollywood and books and whatever that come off that, you end up with this, with just this, this deceitful slut, you know, who, who just leads people astray. It's like, what? What? How did that happen? 
Well, the fact is it happens. It happens a lot. And when we think about our own lives and our own selves, it's probably easier to see this the way that we do it to other people, right? Do any of you do this to other people? Are there other people, whether they're political figures or they are movie stars or they are people that sit across the room from you or whatever, that we can somehow flatten and turn them into a trope and then therefore dismiss them? Right? And then what we can do is if we get a lot on other people who feel the same way with us about the other person, we can spin that narrative and even make stuff up. And then we just take it and we put it back upon that person. And I mean, we, this is what we do as humans. And none of us are free of it, right? And, and what I think God calls us to do and to be is to recognize, like, anytime you flatten anybody out like that, you're doing a disservice. You're sinning. Nobody is that flat. And we all know that, but it's easy for us to do that, to flatten people and to make them into tropes. Um, but that we've got to recognize... <laughs> that people are complex, life is difficult, and we're never as bad as our worst day, and we're never as good as our best day all the time. You know, we, we, we kind of are in between there. And for us to extend grace and nuance to others, the same way that, that I think we need, to, we need to recognize that in ourselves, one of the other things I think we do is we can start to live into a trope or a caricature of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? If from a certain age or a certain time things are said about you, oh, Kristen, you're this. You know, or Laura, you're, you're this. Or, or, you know, you're good at this. or you're the, you, We can start to live into those and not even examine them or challenge them. We find ourselves years later, even decades later, going, oh, shit, I'm still living out this caricature. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it fits who we are. But a lot of times it's lazy. Too. Sometimes it's lazy, <laughs> like yeah. My grandfather... Um, was a scary presence in my life and he even signed birthday cards and stuff as the mean one and I feel like it just gave him permission to be his worst self mm. and like it made us all accept that about him mm. like he had permission to be mean because we kind of laughed about it and let him do that mm. and it's lazy yeah. like boys are boys yeah, yeah. boys are big boys thank you I started so young oh yeah he likes you yeah yeah, yeah. Toys. What do you mean? Toys to kids. The way that you know we give kitchen stuff to girls. Mm -hmm. Dolls. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're creative. You're going to be a good cook, rather than you're going to be in whatever. Well, I'll let you choose. Yeah. <laughs> so is this the only story about Jezebel? Yeah. She comes up again in Second Kings. First Kings, Second Kings, First. Chronicles and Second Chronicles are all kind of weird because they tell the, the same story kind of from in different ways. Right. So in Second Kings, she comes up again in the story of Naboth's vineyard, and, and and she ends up. It's really gross. She gets thrown down from the window, and she dies, and the dogs eat her. So it fulfills this prophecy that. Right. that you know. But is she a normal kind of like sexy man? Like no, the only the only thing letter, in the, like. in the yeah, <laughs> <laughs> dear Bible. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, part part of, you know, as I've been reading through this, um, one, one of the things, the only thing that, like, the fe feminist scholars, that's what's so great about, like, feminist or womanist or people, of, different people of different backgrounds reading the same text. So the problem with the Bible is that for basically forever, it's only been read and interpreted by white men, primarily white European men. 
And so when you start to have other people read it, you go, wait a minute, I don't see it that way. I see it this way. That is not a challenge to the authority of Scripture. That's actually a liberation of the Scripture so that you get to see it and experience it from more perspectives. And as more women, you know, I had more um, women in my seminary class even 20 years ago than, than men. And, uh, and so more and more women are now professors and leaders in, in, uh, in seminary and theological education. But as they look at it just literally through a, a woman's lens, they're like, wait a minute, that's not how I read it. Um, and one of the, one of the things that, that they say from Jezebel is that in the second Kings, when she is, Elijah comes to the window, kind of similar to the way he talks to Ahab here, he comes and he calls out for Jezebel. And Jezebel, before she goes to the window, it says that she, she put on makeup and combed her hair or something like that, and then she went to the window. Um, and if you look at that in, in, in any other context, it would have been like, well, that's, what, that's just what anybody does, especially if you're a princess or you're a queen. Right. Someone calls to the window, you're like, okay, I'm just going to and go. And probably it was a sign of her asserting her authority and her regal, and like, I've got the money to have makeup, I've got... And yet the way that male interpreters have read back into this, oh, look at you, who's going to try to seduce Elijah. It's like, what? And so that interpretation got put into some commentaries, and so... Uh, you know, that's like, is that, the, is that it? That means that she was a slut because she put on makeup before she went to the window. I want to push back a little bit, though, because a lot of this interpretation hasn't just been by white men. So, like, Jewish interpreters have been interpreting this. I mean, that's a super piece of it. And for, I think, the, the piece that I want to push back a little bit against is just this idea that, like, suddenly all these people have been on the scene. Like, a lot of, like, African-American folks, people from Southeast Asia, um, women have been doing this work from day one. It's just that the centers of power are beginning right. to recognize it. And so it's not really new. It's more just kind of who's being able to have any stake there. Right. And so like even like with liberation theology in the 70s or African Americans, like if you read a lot of narratives of people who are enslaved, they were doing liberative theology. They would say like, here are parts of the Bible that we're not going to read or we're not going to read it this way. It's just that people in the center of power would say like, well, that's so for even for folks going back to Germany, like I would say within the academy, sure. But I would say if you talk to a lot of communities of color, they'd say that's never been the source of power right. for us. And so right. it's like a both, a yeah. both and. Yeah. So I think the academy is kind of being called out a little bit now. Yeah. Um, it still has a long way to go. And that still is the center there, but that center is not the same for every single community. Yeah. So. yeah. What do you define as the center of authority? Yeah. yeah. Well, and you also sure. have women that will interpret this scripture as, yes, that is my place as a wife to be completely submissive to my husband and whatever, you know, I personally look at it as no, no, <laughs> but, you know, but it's, but you, you know, there's even still women that are very supportive of men being authority figures and them taking the lead role and being the head of the household and having all that power and authority, and my place is to be the one who supports him or whatever. Other, um, if we kind of bring this to a close at a, at a personal, a little more of a personal front, um, are there ways that you think in our society or even in your family that um, you have personally allowed yourself to become a caricature or, or to take on a role 
that is not necessarily like now that you like if you think of it as clothing you're like wait a minute this never really fit quite right or this doesn't actually that was never even my shirt I just somebody put it on me and I just started wearing it um, the nice thing about new years and new decades is it kind of we kind of corporately say okay everyone can do something new you can try you know so if you say hey I want to do this differently so it's kind of an opportunity for us a unique Sunday to say yeah let me think about it what is I mean I, I you know one of the things that Stacy and I have talked about and I've had to own and, and disown in my life is I'm a youngest kid and so part of what that and I was always told that and so part of that was uh, if ever I did anything silly or if I was late to something it was like oh he's the youngest you can't expect him to have any you know because my mom and dad were both oldest my sister was hyper responsible my brother was an oldest and so I like it was like part of my identity was oh I'm I'm not responsible I'm always late I'm whatever and and uh, but I never was those. I was always responsible. I was always, you know, kind of. And yet that continues to be a something that was put on me, and a trope, a character that I've played into and had to fight against. And I think sometimes the things that are said of us are actually true, and they are liber. They help us to be like, oh, I never would have seen that on myself. But oh, you're good at this, or you're you enjoy that. And so not all the the characteristics <coughs> or the. Or the um, interpretations of who we are are wrong. Sometimes they're right on and they're very helpful. Um, so I, wanna, I just want to end with a story and then we'll close. But uh, a, a guy who um, become a friend of mine has been in ministry for a while, longer than me, pastor. And about 10 years ago, he went, uh, a Presbyterian pastor, um, he went to a retreat. And he was on that retreat with a number of other pastors and caregivers and stuff. And he... Uh, the guy who was leading the retreat, he trusted him a lot, but he was kind of a creative guy, the leader was. And, he, and one morning he said, what I want you to do this morning is I want everyone to leave this room, get outside. And he goes, I just want you to walk until you see something that doesn't quite fit, something that catch, catches your attention. It doesn't quite fit. And, and then I want you to approach that thing, and I want you to then try to figure out why it attracted you. And then I want you to listen to it and see what it has to teach you. And he's like, well, that's weird. So they went off on their own ways, and they were by a golf course, and uh, he started walking across this golf course. And he looked out, and he saw this thing sticking up. He's like, well, that kind of caught my attention. As he got closer, it was uh, it was a telephone pole, kind of in a random place in this, in this um, golf course. And so he stood there, and he's by the telephone pole, and he's like, well, this isn't that interesting. It's a telephone pole. I should find something else. But he said, you know, no, I'm gonna, this is the first thing that caught me, and it caught my eye. And so he said, all right, telephone pole, what do you have to teach me? So he sat by this pole for a little while, feeling weird. And he said, all of a sudden, it's like the telephone pole started speaking to him. And it said to him, uh, I am a tree. He said, I used to live in a forest. And I was wild and beautiful and strong. And I was cut down. And I was trimmed. And I was straightened. And I was placed in the earth here in a line with that pole that's 150 feet that way and the next way. And I hold this wire. And that's what I do. But I am a tree. And this guy said he started crying and realized I'm, I'm a tree. I've been a Presbyterian minister for this many years and it's been good things about it and it's made me do X and Y, but I beat me to be a tree again. So my challenge, encouragement to all of you this new year is just to be like, what is, what, what is that, what's the deep tree in you that maybe has been saying, you know, what you're doing is great, it's fine, or maybe for a season, but is there something something else that God is calling out to you that we can challenge maybe some of the assumptions or tropes that we've
to and then you know, the grace to not do that to others as well. Final thoughts? Next week, we're going to continue on this series talking about characters, but we're going to talk about Elijah. So if you want to do some forward Elijah is fascinating. It deals with pretty serious depression and pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Good story. All right. Chris, anything else? Okay. Happy New Year, everybody.